0: Well, friends, I have only ever liked two nativity scenes. One of them was a classic living room set. You picture the classic one, but there was one exception to it. One exception to the classic set, a ferocious red dragon is at the feet of Mary. Now, if you don't understand why that is brilliant, I invite you to come back next Sunday, John Luke preaching from Revelation 12. Uh, the other one... It was about a 15 minute drive from my family's farm uh, north of london ontario there was a humble looking wooden manger scene on the front lawn of this home there's mary joseph uh, jesus and the shepherds you can all see them from the road so quite large a christmas light star was on top of a silo uh, in behind this house and then as you're driving by it, and you start passing by the field that surrounds this home, you can see at the very back of this 100-acre farm, there's the Magi, the wise men, just setting out lit up by spotlights. It's delicious biblical accuracy. I loved it. I, I hate, if, if you don't know this already, I, I assume most of you do, unfortunately, the wise men, the Magi, they were not at the nativity Of Jesus Christ on the night that the angels told the shepherds of his birth. Getting a detail like that is, of course, uh, not the purpose of criticizing a family heirloom or a nativity set you might buy at a store. That is not uh, my purpose this morning, nor is it really any Christian's purpose. I will say that an heirloom, though, is a benign symptom of a real problem. Pastor John brought this up a few weeks ago during his sermon about Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman. Friends, the Bible's narratives, the ones that are the most popular, so easily become mass-produced, so divorced from their context and authorial intent, so that when we hit these stories in the Bible, it's like we almost stop reading the Bible itself and we press play on a pre-recorded movie in our brains, featuring those flannel graph men that we saw in our grade one Sunday school class. I speak from experience on that one. So for a text like we have today, as we look at the first part of Matthew 2, we need to slow down and we need to try to distinguish truth from tradition. And we need to zoom out and get our bearings in Matthew's overall narrative. We need to ask questions like this. Why does Matthew and it is only Matthew, include the Magi in his origin account of Jesus. Why is this in our Bibles? How would Matthew's first readers have understood this account differently, perhaps, than we approach this text today? For Matthew, yes, all the biblical authors have a theological purpose as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture, Some stories are included, some are left out, and that is not to hide the truth or to distort the truth, but it is so we might see clearly the truth. As the Apostle John puts it so well at the end of his gospel, this was his purpose of writing his gospel, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Matthew has a similar complementary purpose. So in that light, how do we view the wise men? First, let's just pause together and read this text through. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Friends, this story is part of Matthew's overall introduction to his gospel. It covers roughly three and a half chapters at the beginning of Matthew. There's approximately six movements to this introduction. There's the genealogy of Jesus, there's Joseph's faithfulness at the end of chapter one, there's the Magi, the escape and return from Egypt, the ministry of John the Baptist that culminates in the baptism of Jesus, and then there's Jesus' standoff with Satan in the wilderness. That's important to note as we think about the broad structure of where this story is lying. Matthew, it's clear from that layout, isn't setting forward every fact about Jesus' birth that he knows. He doesn't say a thing, for example, about the shepherds, about the angels' announcement to them, or even the crucial decree of Caesar that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Yet, the Magi's visit is included. It's a crucial piece of his framing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just ponder that as we move through our text today. So here we are in this third movement if you will, of Matthew's introduction to his gospel. It's the account of the Magi. And this story comes to us in three acts, three scenes, if you will. Uh, You'll see this in the outline up on the screen behind me and in your bulletins. There's scene one, uh, verses one to three, that centers on a disturbing question. Scene two recounts a revealing investigation. That's verses four to eight. And then scene three, there is a fitting coronation, verses nine to twelve. Let's look at scene one, a disturbing question. Verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, I'm going to stop there for a second. It's pretty abrupt. Matthew seems to presume here that his audience is familiar to some degree with Luke's nativity account or the oral tradition that Luke would later write down, Uh, the angel, shepherd's manger, all of that is sort of assumed here. Moving along, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And we have to stop here for a significant time in verse 1. Verse 1 assumes a lot of us here in the 21st century. Both main characters to this narrative are introduced without much background, without really any background. Uh, Matthew could safely do that uh, for his first audience, first century Jews, because they knew of these groups and of these people. But alas, we are not, first century Jews. So who is Herod and who are the Magi? First, Herod. There are a lot of King Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. It can be really easy to mix them up or to blend them all into one character. The Herod here is Herod the Great, or in Gen Z speak, this is the OG Herod. He is the dynasty founder. He is the greatest Herod as history came to know him. The Herod who interrogates Jesus some 30 years later, that's his son. That's Herod Antipas. Uh, his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, is the one who dies a nasty angel induced worm death in Acts 12. And toward the end of Acts, Paul will appear before his great grandson, Herod Agrippa II. So there are two things we must know first about Herod the Great. Matthew's first readers would have absolutely known this. They would have remembered this, some of them by experience. Uh, The Jewish populace, this is number one, resented Herod the Great's rule. In large part because he was an imposter. He was a half-blood. He was born to an Edomite father and a Jewish-Israelite mother in the region of Edumia that was south of Israel. And it was only through some shrewd diplomacy, some sucking up to the Romans that he got himself named the vassal king of Judea around 40 BC. Second, his reputation, especially late in his 37-year reign, that's around the time the Magi are coming, was that of being a paranoid, ruthless rage monster, a 70-year-old one at that. Uh, More on this as we get to verse 3. So what about the Magi? This is the big question, right? I mean, you've maybe looked at this yourself. It's It's out there. It's a very popular topic, but it's also an elusive one. Who are the Magi? The Greek word here is Magoi. Uh, Scholars believe that word derives from Persian origin. I am not one of those scholars. I'm relying upon them. It refers likely at one time in history to a priestly caste in that region of the world. Uh, For example, the book of Daniel refers multiple times to Magi. We see this. Uh, They are amongst those summoned by the various Babylonian and the various Persian kings in the book of Daniel to interpret dreams. Though by the first century, it seems this has taken on a broader connotation, not just priests in Persia, but experts in astrology, known in the occult arts, dream interpretation more generally. We see this in Acts 13, where Luke uses the term in his account of Barnabas and Saul when they go to Cyprus. They encounter Elymas there in Cyprus, and that's the same word as translated in the NIV, sorcerer, but that is Magoi. Extra-biblical sources also refer to Magi in the first century. As some of these are respected wise men, others are kind of framed as ruthless, kind of rogue charlatans. They're listed amongst attendees at various coronations, including Roman emperors. Most commonly, they're associated with Babylon and with Persia and with Arabia, but not exclusively. All Matthew gives us here is from the east, which could encompass, again, any of those likely areas. And that's what we can know for sure. Again, there's some ambiguity here. Unlike some more recent traditions, though, they are not likely kings themselves. They may advise, they may hang around kings, but magi are not of royal blood So what's important about them for our purposes? How would Matthew's audience have viewed the Magi? I'll note three things. This will be going through the mind of a first reader of this account. Number one, they are Gentiles. We must always remember this binary in the Jewish mind in the first century under the Old Covenant. Number two, they are participating in practices condemned. In the law of Moses, such as astrology, a cult, in a way, they are representative, we could say, of pagan spirituality. And number three, while they are not kings, they are still often associated with royalty. So when you think of the Magi, think Gentile, pagan, courtiers, something like that. I'm just going to use the term Magi throughout our sermon today. Uh, Verse one also prompts us to answer another crucial question, and that is when. When are we? All we get in verse 1 is after, right? It says after the birth of Jesus. So how long after? I'm going to just jump ahead in our text this morning to answer this. I think it needs to help. It helps us get our historical bearings. Now down in verse 7 we read that Herod found out from the Magi the exact time the star had appeared. Then in verse 16, after Herod realizes the Magi have ghosted him and they've hightailed at home, we read that he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So it seems the Magi told Herod the star's appearance occurred several months at least, if not a year, before their arrival in Jerusalem. You can assume Herod likely rounded up a bit his cruel decree just to make sure he did not miss uh, this baby. There also could have been a delay in Herod realizing the Magi had not come back to him. In any case, it seems the Magi told Herod the star marking Jesus' birth had appeared a fair amount of time before their arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, most of the likely origin countries uh, for the Magi, we also keep this in mind, at least a couple months journey away from Jerusalem. And there are a few other clues that point to Jesus being older in the text. Uh, One is Matthew's use of the generic Greek word for child instead of Luke's repeated use of the word for baby. Uh, The Magi also visit a home in this chapter as opposed to Luke's uh, feeding area setting. So in terms of a time frame, the best we can do here for our story, we're looking somewhere between several weeks at the minimum to about 20 months after Jesus' birth. Uh, Julia Copeland is here, right? And that, Oh, she's in the back right now. Picture Julia Copeland. That's probably about the age of baby Jesus in this, about a year old. That's my best guess for you. Uh, picture Jesus looking like a well-established chunk at this point. He's no longer just a newborn baby. Uh, Jesus has been born roughly four to 20 months earlier. This group of pagan Gentiles associated with kings arrives in Jerusalem from a country east of Israel. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is the capital of the Roman vassal state of Judea and still the center of Jewish influence. And these magi are requesting audience with the polarizing puppet king of the region to ask a question. Verse two, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I want you to picture for a moment. Herod kind of choking on his saliva when he hears this question. The Magi may be renowned astrologers, but they are not reading the room well here. They're not up on the local news. They assume Herod and company will be excited to hear that potentially this Jewish prophecy is coming true. However, as I mentioned, in the final years of Herod's reign, Herod was paranoid. He was unpredictable. He was a desperate tyrant, so much so that he killed his own wife. He killed two of his sons out of fear of losing his throne. And that probably happened not long before the Magi arrived. Josephus, other historians of the time, tell us Herod was notorious for assuming everyone was out to get him. He had many of his close associates executed. And so in that context, verse 3 makes a lot of sense. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem is only as happy as its happiest Herod, and so this question, as interesting and as positive as it sounds coming from the Magi, surely sets Herod on edge, and the people fearing an unstable Herod are also on edge. Let's look again at the question. The Magi say they are seeking a future Jewish king because they had seen an astrological phenomenon when it rose, or more literally, from the dawn meaning they saw something new in the western sky uh, from the perspective of the Magi homeland. Why did that event lead them to conclude that a Jewish king was born? There are a lot of homelands to the west of the Magi's home. Why a Jewish king? Well, it's true in this time period that Astrological events were commonly associated with the rising and the falling of various rulers. But again, there must be more to it. Why zero in on the Jewish nation? The answer, I believe, lies in our Bibles. It lies in Numbers twenty-four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Those are the words of Balaam the seer, a pagan sorcerer not unlike the Magi, about 1,400 years before them. He was hired by the king of Moab to pronounce a curse on the Israelites as they camped on the verge of the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert. But Balaam, as the story goes, we are told, is unable to curse them. God intervenes and he puts words of blessing in his mouth instead. By the first century, Jewish tradition, Jewish teaching, absolutely viewed this prophecy as messianic. There is abundant evidence of this. Uh, some OT translations in this time period actually swapped the word star in Numbers 24, 17 for king to make it even more explicit. Is it a stretch to say, though, that the Magi knew about Numbers 24? Is it a stretch? I don't think so. As men of learning who without a doubt interacted with various religious literature, this was kind of their their thing, they would have been very likely familiar with the Jewish writings. And if so, if they were familiar at all with Jewish writings, Balaam's oracle was not obscure. Uh, This also lends credence to the argument the Magi may have come from Babylon. A large Jewish population remained in the land of exile in the first century, and Jewish writings likely amongst the annals preserved in that region. Of great importance here is the verb. Matthew is highlighting, I think, this connection with Numbers 24, 17. A scepter will rise is the same formulation the Magi attribute to the star in verse 2 and verse 9 today. They saw it when it rose. The star and the prophecy are enough to prompt the Magi to go to the capital of the Jewish nation, presumably the most logical place for the birth of a king. They come seeking the true king of Israel, but instead they find an imposter on the throne. We get a revealing investigation in the middle sections of this text. So Herod is now thoroughly agitated. He's concerned by this question. The whole city is nervous for their lives as a result, and the king demands to get to the bottom of the Magi's question. Verse 4 When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Seems like a bit of a dubious question for the political leader of the Jewish people for three decades now that he doesn't know the answer to this. But in line with his estrangement for the religious leaders, this makes some sense. He is threatened by the prospect. And perhaps the Magi had a numbers scroll with them to show him this prophecy that is possible. Or some other prophecy preserved by Daniel or something of that nature. In any case, Herod the imposter, he phones kind of begrudging acquaintances at this point in his reign. He calls on the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. And that's a technical formulation. You could actually translate that in a a way, Pharisees and Sadducees. The teachers and scribes were mainly Pharisees in this time, and the Sadducees were mainly the priests. So he calls both major teaching sects uh, from within uh, the Jewish people, and they come to him, perhaps likely separately. Sadducees and the Pharisees, they do not see eye to eye on quite a lot of theology. But they did agree on a few things. Not liking Herod. Uh, Both resented his reign. Uh, Herod, perhaps not trusting either of them, calls them in separate consultations to lessen the chance of his being lied to. And what he gets instead is a rare moment of unanimous agreement. We don't know how long it took them to give him this answer. Perhaps it was immediate. That would be my understanding of this text. This is a pretty clear prophecy. The answer is Bethlehem they tell him. The Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. And as we get to this text that is quoted here by the religious leaders, let's take a moment to praise God for the clarity of scripture. Friends, the essential doctrines of Christianity are not hidden in the Bible. They are plain to those whom the Lord gives eyes to see, and they are still plainly seen, yet disbelieved by those who do not. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah that will bring blessing to the nations, it may have infinite depth. I mean, you can do a million PhDs on this doctrine, but sufficient understanding is both necessary and accessible to you and to me. So take lesson from this text, open the word, read the word, believe the word. It is sufficient. In this case, the priests and the teachers, they open to Micah 5, 2-4, and they show Herod that the Christ, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. And then they disappear from the account. It appears they didn't bother to look into this further, or perhaps even clarify why Herod was asking, we don't know. Throughout this story, Matthew is setting up a contrast between the enthusiasm of the Gentile magi and the reception of Jesus by his fellow Jews, be it Herod or the teachers. It's a pattern that in God's wise plan largely, sadly, continues to this day. There is a partial hardening of the Jewish people. It's in place until the full number of Gentiles is brought in, Romans eleven twenty-five. Just note briefly here that while the Jewish authorities have accurate scriptural knowledge, they answer this question correctly, they have no heart to seek out the God of Scripture. This continues today as well. Some of the world's most learned biblical scholars fall into this same sad category. So do some pastors. So do some long-standing church members. Do you? Do you love God? Do you humble yourself before his word and put it into action? Or do you appoint yourself chief interpreter and esteemed critic? of the words breathed out by the Almighty God? Do you add to it, like the Pharisees? Do you take away a few doctrines that seem just a bit too incredible, like the Sadducees? The Magi, however, however pagan they may have been, with no formal training in the word, yet seem to respond to it correctly, from a considerable distance, on doubtful premises, and persist until they find the Savior. The answer to the Magi's question lies in Micah 5.2 and Micah 5.4. Matthew paraphrases this passage in verses 5 and 6 of our text. A couple of minor adjustments that Matthew actually throws in for emphasis. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's look at the source text. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, so that's an archaic name that Matthew has chosen to replace with a modern uh, formulation of this town. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Matthew adds that by no means clause in the Matthew text for us. That portion is to emphasize the change in Bethlehem's status. This is no longer... Uh, looking forward, Bethlehem has changed now. The ruler is here. Bethlehem's stock is now sure to rise with the arrival of Jesus, by no means least. Uh, verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That's Micah uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 4. And Matthew actually uses a different formulation of the same truth. He goes to 2 Samuel 5, 2 to put forward the shepherd nature. Of this ruler. Again, the sentiment is the same, but he's really highlighting there because that prophecy in Samuel is about David. He's highlighting uh, the Davidic nature of this ruler. Verse 4 continues in in Micah, chapter 5, verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. If you have your Bible open to Micah 5 right now, verse 4, underline that last formulation. The king from Bethlehem's greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Again, when when scripture is quoted in the New Testament, we need to remember that people reading these texts are familiar, some of them memorizing whole books of the Old Testament scripture. That when something is quoted in a small chunk, they are thinking of the whole context. It's true that a good amount of Matthew's point here is simply that Jesus fulfills Scripture by being born in Bethlehem. That is true. But there is more to it. This Bethlehem-born Messiah will also be the long-awaited king in Jerusalem who draws the ends of the earth to himself. The Magi are the first to come. Their appearance confirms that Jesus isn't just anyone born in Bethlehem. He is, in fact, this Bethlehem-born nation-drawing king of Micah 5. And this, I believe, is really at the heart of Matthew's purpose for including this story in his origin account of Jesus. We're going to spend some time on this as we get to verse 11. For now, just note briefly, Matthew is setting up another contrast for us here in these middle, this middle scene. There is the illegitimacy of Herod's kingship, which would have been known, and the legitimacy of Jesus. Herod, the Jewish king, doesn't know crucial prophecy relating to the eternal welfare of the people he's ruling. He wasn't born in Israel. His own people resent him. He is virtually nothing on the world stage. Yet Jesus is born in the city of David. He fulfills scripture again and again and again. And now the nations are streaming to him. Feeling threatened, Herod devises a fiendish plan. Verse 7. He calls the Magi secretly, it says, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now we have no indication the Magi see through this obvious lie. It seems they were actually truly going to go back to Herod until an angel appears to them in verse 12 and redirects them. Herod sends them without an escort. That adds some credence here to him trusting that the wise men are going to do what he asked them. But friends, it's all in God's providence. By Herod trusting the Magi, he inadvertently gives Mary and Joseph the practical means to escape thanks to the expensive gifts. And secondly, it sets into motion a series of events that lead to the fulfillment of three more scriptures. We won't get into this today, but you can look at them in chapter two, verses 15, 18, 23. It's all because Herod sends the Magi secretly, trusting they will come back to him. Scene three, a fitting coronation. Look at verse nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. So these eager magi, they set out from Jerusalem. Now it was common at this time, especially in this part of the world, to travel in the cool of the night. They are now Bethlehem bound, having the answer from Micah. This is just a couple hours down the road, a very short journey compared to where they have come, likely. When perhaps somewhat to their astonishment, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, the text says. You can almost imagine, holy cow, we were right. This has to be legit. (coughs) Friends, let's talk about the star. The word here is, of course, somewhat ambiguous in this period of history. It could refer to a lot of different celestial lights. Uh, Some make very specific claims about particularly uh, planetary alignments or comets or supernovas that may have happened at just this point in history. Verse 9, I think, really makes all those claims difficult to imagine. Remember, the Magi don't actually follow this light from Babylon or wherever they came from to Bethlehem. That's often how we picture it, don't we? There are two followings of the star. In verse 2, the Magi recount that it appeared in the western sky from their perspective in their homeland, and this made them go to Israel, perhaps more because of the prophecy than of anything else. The star itself is not moving ahead of them as they traveled on this initial trip. At least that's not what the text tells us. And then there is verse 9 where the star is depicted as moving in front of the Magi as they walk south, not west, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, uh, finally stopping over the general area. It's not actually the house in in the Greek, It's, it's just the general area, over Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was. Uh, The text doesn't indicate it's over his exact house, though it is possible. Here's the bottom line. I don't think there is a natural explanation for this star. Here is the best one. The celestial light that alerts the Magi to Jerusalem and then guides them down to Bethlehem is a miraculous work of God. We don't need to be ashamed of this. As Christians. Nor should we be surprised. After all, its purpose is to highlight God's greatest miracle, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. However, this star may point to something else in Israel's history. If you have your Bibles, you can try to follow with me. This is this is useful, I think. Exodus 13, 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. That was Exodus 13. Exodus 40. 36. Exodus 40. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Does that sound familiar? This connection, I think, becomes even more clear when we consider what they both point to. The pillars of cloud and fire were visible manifestations of God's special revelatory presence in Israel in this time in Exodus. God was dwelling in the inner room of the tabernacle when Israel camped, and he went out before the people, and they moved through the desert in cloud or in fire, depending on what time of day it was, until they came to rest at their next campsite. And then finally, ultimately, the promised land. That's where they're being led to, where God would establish his more permanent dwelling place amongst his people until the exile. the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Brothers and sisters, just as God once led his own people by a miraculous light to the next place where his glory would dwell, so here in Matthew 2, God leads the people that are not his own, not of natural descent, by a miraculous light away from the temple in Jerusalem that he had long since departed to the place where God was, now dwelling with man like never before in the incarnate Jesus. The star signals that God's special revelatory presence on earth lies no longer in the back room of a temple accessible only to a select family within the biological descendants of Abraham, but in the person of Jesus Christ, accessible to pagan astrologers and to Jews alike. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child and with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Most of the ink on the Magi account is spilled on the three gifts listed at the end of this verse. I contend this is probably a bit overdone. So much so that it's almost ubiquitous now that there were three magi when the text nowhere tells us that. People assume that based on the number of gifts, but we all, really, all we really know is there was at least two. There was more than one. This is an example, I think, when we focus too much on the gifts of not seeing the forest for the trees. Or in this case, not seeing the act of worship for one of the means of it. I agree with Don Carson on the function of the gifts. He writes this commentators, ancient and modern, have found symbolic value in the three gifts gold, suggesting royalty, frankincense, divinity, myrrh as an embalming fragrance, pointing to his death. And this interpretation, Carson says, I agree, demands too much insight from the Magi. The three gifts were simply expensive, not uncommon presents, and may have helped finance the trip to Egypt. Now, don't get me too far out here. I'm not tossing everything out. I think there is some merit to the symbolism. Nicodemus, of course, does bring myrrh to embalm Jesus's body in John 19. Uh, Mark records that myrrh is offered to Jesus as he's on the cross and mixed in the wine. Uh, Frankincense, absolutely, is a priestly fragrance offered up to God. Gold is definitely associated with kingship. But myrrh, is also not exclusively or even most often used for this purpose, just as frankincense is not mainly used in temple worship. A Song of Songs 3 helps us get a sense of kind of the general lavish nature of the gifts. It says this Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? I think it is better to primarily see these gifts as a unit. Instead of standing alone. They are the fulfillments of Psalm 72. John read this as our call to worship. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba at the opposite points of a compass from Tarsus, present him with gifts. The emphasis of the text on the gifts is on being expensive. They were treasures. The toddler Jesus is worthy of this expensive gift. The focus is not upon the symbolism, though the symbolism may be there in the text. What we do very well to consider at greater length is the act as a whole that the wise men participate in. The Magi, the text says, bowed down and worshiped him. Now, does this mean they recognize Jesus as God? We don't know. The word Matthew uses for worship here may simply mean pay homage. Uh, That is, giving an honor to royalty, but not necessarily worshiping a deity. However, Matthew certainly intends us to see that at the very least, the Magi are worshiping better than they know. And he absolutely wants us to see that pagan Gentile nations are represented here by the Magi, bowing at the feet of Israel's rightful Davidic Messiah King. And it is here that we arrive as I've described in your bulletin for you, at a mountain peak of biblical theology. And what I mean is we stumble here onto one of the threads that ties together the whole Bible and therefore all of history. It's why I had John read Isaiah 60 this morning, which reads like a prophetic script for the Magi's visit. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Over the next two, three minutes, I want you to to run with me. We're going to run on this lofty theme across the sands of time. First, take a screenshot with me in your mind. Picture the Magi in the room, (coughs) bowing before Jesus. Take a screenshot, put that up here on a timeline, right in the middle. And then come back here to the start of it for me. Genesis 11, God scatters the nations at the Tower of Babel. Sin rules over them. They are capable of nothing but evil. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram out of these prideful nations and says, I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And for the rest of the Old Testament, that is anticipated. Would David fulfill it? Would Solomon? At times, they almost do in a limited sense, but they always fall short. The prophets, though, are unanimous. The day is coming when one will not fall short. Isaiah 60, see darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. Micah 4.2, the passage that leads up to the one that we looked at already this morning. Micah 4.2 says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. The peoples will stream into it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. Zechariah 8.20, many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse, the root of David, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And now we're back at our snapshot, right in the middle of our timeline. Jesus and the Magi, the first inkling we could say, along with the Gentiles that Matthew includes in the genealogy in chapter 1, that this long prophesied nation-drawing king has arrived. So let's power forward now in the timeline. Let's look and see if this proves true. Jesus now speaking in Matthew eight eleven, I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What did Pilate write above Jesus as he died on the cross? The king of the Jews, but not in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Latin, in Greek. The dominant languages of the entire Roman Empire. And fittingly, the king dies not only for the Jews, but for all people. That much the New Testament epistles make abundantly clear. He dies for you and me, for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The death of God's incarnate Son is sufficient substitute for the sin of any who place their faith in him. And then after his resurrection, this risen king makes this explicit in his very last words before he ascends to his father's right hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. As Greg Lanier writes here, when the Magi bow down in Matthew 2, they implicitly signal what Matthew 28 later makes explicit. Jesus is not just Israel's king, but their king, possessing authority over all nations. I wonder how many nations are represented here in this room this morning, bowing down, as it were, in the same fashion as the Magi. I wager there's a couple of dozen. Praise God. Let's keep running. There's actually two more scenes on this grand timeline. First one is judgment. It's still over here in the future. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All of the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then eternity. Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Brothers and sisters, let us view the Magi's visit through the full scope of God's glorious revelation. This is no quaint visit. The nations are being gathered to King Jesus. Let me just conclude this morning by speaking to a skeptic, perhaps, who's here with us this morning. Perhaps you're here genuinely seeking as well. Perhaps you're here out of kindness to your family. It is Christmas Eve. You're showing face at church. Friend, has a thought like this ever passed through your mind? I mean, I'd worship Jesus too if an unexplainable supernatural light guided me to his doorstep. If I saw him work a miracle. Friend, he's done so much more. The light of the Magi pales in comparison to the light provided by this book. Scripture is a far greater, it is a far brighter star. What the Magi pieced together from Jewish writings, from gracious astrological oddities, we see now in 4K in the Bible. So friend, don't wish for a star. The Magi will be in the same category as the way Matthew describes the men of Nineveh in chapter 12, who responded to Jonah's preaching. This is Carson again here. They will rise up in judgment. That is the Magi condemn those of us who, despite our privilege of a much greater light, did not receive the promised Messiah and bow to his reign. Friends, Scripture is your guide to Christ, your guide to God incarnate, the King of kings, the Savior of the world. You do not need a star. Let God's word be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. Or as we'll sing in a moment, though an infant now we view him, He shall fill his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn, crucified, resurrected, ascended, reigning, and returning king. Amen.